You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Today's teaching from The Greatest Story is entitled, God and You. Good evening, friends. How's everybody doing tonight? Jenny kind of spilled the beans on me last week, but um, it was only a matter of time until you found out. I am 100% a morning person. And so my brain starts to shut down around 7 p.m., which is not super convenient for WBF in the evening. (laughs) But but seriously, I think you guys are rock stars for being here at the end of a long day. I just imagine that there's sometimes you're like, nope, I just want to stay home in my PJs. But you made it here, and so it is a joy to be with you tonight. Uh, Before we actually launch into the story of Scripture, we are going to spend an entire week just camping out on the doctrine of God. And oh man, do I love this. What is doctrine? Maybe some of you are like, "Mm, that sounds nerdy. I don't know about that. Doctrine simply means teachings. Okay? So biblical doctrine means a collection of all that Scripture teaches on a particular subject. So for instance, we could examine all of the Scriptures um, to find every verse that talks about prayer. And then we compile those truths And we have a doctrine of prayer. That's what this means. This simply helps us to have a comprehensive understanding of what we believe. So all of this is going to build into the framework of God's story. But we have to start here with God and God alone. He is the author and origin of it all. And so I hope you will see with fresh eyes tonight just the beauty and the majesty of our God. We begin with God here, where all truth begins. For God is the one true and absolute reality. Back of all, underneath, and supporting all things. He girds the universe and holds it up and guides it. God is the only true God, the only sovereign creator king of the universe. So in your homework I asked you, what would it be like if there was actually many gods? Or if you knew for certain that there was no God, what difference would that make for you? How would that affect your life? Does anyone want to share just an adjective or a description that came to mind when you think of that? Chaos, Chaos, yes. Anything else? Hopeless, yeah. And fear, I think, (laughs) like... Yeah, like if there's, if there's no greater good, then what are we even doing? Yeah, confusion, good. Hopelessness. You guys got most of the ones that came to my mind too. And I want you to see tonight that when we know God rightly, these descriptions are just absolutely crushed with the assurance of who he is. So to start out, let's take a look at a definition of God, which almost sounds like an impossibility. (laughs) The infinite and perfect spirit in whom all things have their source, support, and end. The infinite and perfect spirit in whom all things have their source, support, and end. I thought this was a great, concise summary. I knew it would take me years if I tried to write my own, so we're just going to use this one. <laughs> we're going to think through those adjectives tonight, infinite and perfect. But then building on that, he is the source, 
the support and the end of all things. So in other words, the beginning, the middle, and the end. He's the Alpha and Omega. This immediately puts him in his own category. He is other than all created things. We call this the creator-creature distinction. There's only one creator God and everything else is created. I'm going to highlight two aspects of his creatorness: That he is the origin and that he is infinite. This is so crucial to get right from the start because our entire understanding of God just needs to be built on these things. So first of all, origin. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So we see here this declaration of God being eternal, which technically means having no beginning and no end. That's different from everything else we know. Acts 17, 24 and 25 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. All things find their origin in him, even those who deny it. An aspect of being the creator is that he inherently has authority or rights, if you will, over his creation. And practically speaking, no one can be of higher authority because everything has come from him. Do you see? The source always has authority over the created work. I use this analogy of an artist in your, in your homework. We all know <laughs> that when someone creates something, they have rights of ownership. When that work is duplicated or stolen, there are legal ramifications in our society. And to think that's just a glimpse of the types of rights that our creator has over his creation. And you know what the great thing is? <laughs> is our creator loves us and is good. He does not take advantage of those rights over us in the way that a sinful human might. We must do battle against the lie of the serpent that God can't be trusted for who he is. Now I'm going to introduce you to a theological word that will probably be new to most of you. Again, if you're like, mm, this sounds nerdy, I don't know if I should care about this, I'm going to prove to you why you should care, okay? This word encompasses God's eternal nature so well, all right? The word is aseity. Can you say it with me? Aseity. I had to play that little YouTube clip where it says it over and over and over again. It means existence originating from and having no source other than itself. God's self-existence and self-sufficiency. Again, this is true of absolutely nothing else. It's easy to say, well, yeah, sure, God exists on his own power. I get that. But think of the implications. If God is self-existent and self-sufficient, that means he is not dependent on anything or anyone to come into existence or to stay alive. 
In other words, he needs nothing. When these truths of God kind of break our brains, it can be helpful to look at the opposite, what our known reality is. As creatures, we have a lot of needs. Some of them are physical needs to stay alive, like food and water and oxygen. And some are emotional needs. And while we may physically survive if those needs aren't met, we're not well inside. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't love having needs. Have you ever caught yourself saying, I don't have time to eat. And isn't it so inconvenient how you have to sleep for so many hours to be functional? Herein lies a little manifestation of sin that we actually prefer to be needless. But that's only true of God. So our needs are meant to remind us of this creator-creature distinction. It's as if they're saying, hey, you're not God. And that's a good thing. And so just chill out and go make yourself some lunch. May or may not be preaching to myself. (laughs) Let's take this one step further. Because we are physically dependent on other things to stay alive, we can become pretty desperate when those needs are not met. Right? If you take the most dignified person, lock them in a room for a week, and deny them food, by the end of the week, they would do just about anything for a piece of bread. Those survival instincts are even part of how we're designed. But the point is, those needs have a certain power over us. We can be controlled or even manipulated because of our needs. How many of you have ever taken young children to an amusement park? (laughs) Very few. I was like, no. (laughs) I have subbed that job out to my mom and sister. I'm like, I'm no, just not doing that. Anyways, I want you to imagine this for a moment, though. Pretend you have some kiddos in your life kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, whatever. Pack them all up in the car and you're headed for a fun day at the amusement park, okay? It's such a beautiful day out. You're having a blast. In fact, you're having so much fun that you keep postponing lunch, just kind of pushing it off, until it's about one o'clock and you know you're playing with fire. Like, we've got to get some food in those bellies or we're going to have a meltdown. So you head back to the gate because you're going to go out and eat your packed lunches in the car, obviously. Food's such a (laughs) rip-off. And to your dismay, the attendant says, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. We just instituted a new rule this season that you're not allowed to go out of the park and come back in without paying a readmission fee. Sorry. <laughs> so you try to reason with her. You try to bargain with her. You just stop short of threatening her, okay? But it's not going anywhere. She's like, I'm sorry. I don't make the rules. Can't help you. And so what are you going to do? You're looking down at the kids. They're looking up at you. They're sad. They don't want to leave. We're having so much fun. And there's no way you're going to pay readmission. So I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. You're going to go buy $45 worth of hot dogs. (laughs) Because that's you have no choice. (laughs) Your need has manipulated you or coerced you into doing something that you did not want to do. Listen to me. God is never, ever in that place of desperate need. 
he can never be manipulated or coerced into doing something that he did not intend to do. And what a comfort that is. Though we may sometimes bargain with God and try to get him to do things our way, right? Do you really want to serve a God that can be manipulated? Deuteronomy 10.17 says, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. That is sweet relief. His perfect character will maintain righteous authority over all he has made. The other aspect of God's creatorness is that he is infinite. Here's a definition for you. Having no limits, unable to be fully comprehended, measured, or contained. Now again, we have to contrast this. I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> Just wave at me. We have to contrast this to our known reality because it's so other than. As creatures, we are finite, having limits, able to be contained. As creator, he is other than. This is a prime example of why the story of scripture matters. Because the story that culture is feeding you is that your limits are just a figment of your imagination. You can just blow right past them. You can do anything you set your mind to. You are limitless. I haven't had a cup of hot tea one time that the little tag said, you are limitless. I thought, you are misinformed, cup of tea. <laughs> oh. Now, I get the underlying intent here, but I just can't go along with this jargon. We need to speak carefully in accordance with what's true. And the truth is, just as our needs are meant to highlight our creator and sustainer, so are our limits. Now, how could that be possible? Our limits so often make us feel inadequate or unqualified or just plain down frustrated. We don't like them. Consider it this way. Is it more glorifying to God to pack our schedules and run ourselves ragged for the kingdom or to say, you know, I'd love to help you with that, but I've got to be honest, I'm acting like I don't have any limits. I'm acting like I can do everything and be everything to everyone. And my health is suffering. I'm not sleeping. I'm snapping at the people around me. So I just can't right now. That is sweet relief. And I hope that it strikes you as such. You don't have to do all and be all. As women, I think we probably take that upon ourselves a little more than men do. So I just hope that this truth is a balm to your feminine heart. That although we mirror him in so many ways, we are not the creator and sustainer. That's his responsibility alone. As I alluded to, this subject about limits has a lot of conversation around it. So everything from social media to psychology. And there are nuances of how we apply these truths about having limits as a creature. But I just want to offer you this simple biblical framework. The creator-creature distinction is the most important part of this that the world is missing in its philosophy. So once we have that established, we can go one of two ways. 
we can come humbly to the Lord, seeking his wisdom to know what we should or shouldn't commit to. And hey, maybe it's not the schedule. Maybe it's what time you just need to go to bed. Or maybe it's how much news you can handle in a day. Sometimes that means drawing a boundary and saying, I'm finite, I'm limited, and I just can't. And then sometimes God may be asking you to go beyond your limits in a certain situation. Lord knows I wish there was a formula for this. But do you hear the heart attitude? It's humility, open hands, staying in step with the Lord. Now the alternative of that is to go into self-preservation mode. This is the other extreme. You develop these rigid boundaries around your schedule and your time and your finances and your relationships. And the problem with that is suddenly everything bows to these boundaries instead of to God. So whichever way you lean there, I'd encourage you to just reevaluate that with the Lord. Ask him to show you what you're believing and how we could better align with his design. His ways are life. It's for his glory and your good. The second half of that definition of infinite is the ability to be fully known, measured, or contained. So let's consider these things from a practical standpoint. So first of all, full knowledge of something indicates a mastery of it. How does someone become an expert in their field? It's because they have studied their brains out and they know everything there is to know about that subject. They have mastered it. This is also true when it comes to knowing one another relationally. So with God, we are fully known. But we never have to be afraid of him using that mastery against us. Again, as a sinful human might. Also, scripture encourages us to be known by one another in the body of Christ. When we keep those secret sins walled off from other believers, then it's actually sin that has mastery over us. So we break the enemy's mastery by confessing our sins to one another that we may be healed. And then being able to measure or quantify something to contain things. These are different ways that we seek to understand the created world and to subdue it. This can be very glorifying to God as we work in his world. Think of all the advancements of science and medicine that once we figure out what we're dealing with, we can contain the damaging effects of certain things. So how does all this connect back to who God is? We talk a lot about knowing God here at WBF. And as I mentioned last week, that always comes with a caveat because we can't fully know or comprehend him. And again, that's actually really good news because who wants to serve a God that can be mastered? I don't. But in our sinful nature, we don't like being unable to master something. It feels very big and out of our control. Are you seeing the repeat here? We keep pushing back against these creaturely limits. We don't instinctually lean into them. Think of it this way. Would you set out to learn a new skill or a foreign language or an instrument if you knew there was no way that you were ever going to be proficient at it or master it? 
Like, even if you were brave enough to start, at some point you'd be like, this is pointless. Like, I'm never going to be good at this. It's a waste of my time and money. This is not what pursuing a greater knowledge of God is like. He's not a skill that we're trying to be proficient in. He's not a set of facts that will help you ace a test. Sure, skills and facts are helpful in engaging with him rightly, but ultimately this is about relationship. And as much as we know, we will never master him, but the delight of getting to know him is a bottomless well. We can understand this in the context of healthy human relationships. Think about someone that you love deeply. Why do you want to increasingly know them better? Is it to master them and manipulate them according to your evil desires? I hope not. (laughs) No, of course not. It's because you love them and you enjoy them. It's that moving goalpost of deeper and deeper communion not mastery. That's what it means to know God in the here and now. All the while, we long for the day when we will see him face to face. 1 John 5.20 reads, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know who, him, who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Again, this is a comfort. His infinitude means that we serve a God that cannot be mastered, but has made himself knowable to us. It means he's the only limitless one, and we can rest within the limits of being a finite human, and in fact, find delight in him, because our needs drive us to a greater dependency. The next building block in the doctrine of God is the Trinity. And if I had a specific passage to point you to that would just explain all of this, it would have been in your homework. So this is one of those doctrines that we glean from all over Scripture. And the word Trinity isn't even used in the Bible. Instead of explanations, we have examples. So you looked at some of those this week. You looked at the baptism of Jesus, the Great Commission, some of Jesus' prayers, some of Paul's writing, places where we see all three members of the Godhead mentioned in unison. So based on what we find in Scripture, here's a definition of the Trinity. God eternally exists as one essence, yet three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and there is only one God. So no matter how slowly you read that, it's kind of like, okay, yeah, I got it, but I don't really got it. (laughs) There is mystery here, and that's okay. We are bumping up against the limits of our finite mind. God is not to be fully comprehended. People have been trying to make analogies of the Trinity for a long time and with very little success. Have you heard the egg one? God is three in one. We have a shell and a white and a yolk. But I'm like, there's a membrane in there. And it's totally missing the idea of one essence. 
The shell is nothing like the white, and the white is nothing like the yoke. All of our analogies are going to fall short of this glorious mystery. So I'm not going to try. <laughs> We're just going to lay it out for what it is. I did include this visual, however. Have you seen this before? It's very old. I love it because it's as simple and clear as possible, but it doesn't try to excuse away the mystery. When I'm faced with a concept so big, I have to remind myself, okay, okay, rein it back in. There's a lot I don't know. But what do I know? What do we know? First of all, we know that the Father, Son, and the Spirit experience perfect, complete fellowship. They are not lacking in and of themselves. And do you know why this matters? It matters because Scripture informs us that God is love. How could God know or be love if there were no Trinity? Because he eternally existed before the creation of the world. There certainly were no humans to love in eternity past. Another reason this matters is because if God's love was contingent on you being alive to love, then he would have a need. And as much as we like the idea that God created people because he was lonely and he just wanted a relationship with us, that's putting the responsibility of God meeting that need on a human. Like you don't want to be there. When we understand the implications of these false ideas, we're actually like, oh, just kidding. Like, yeah, I don't actually want that. The triune God created as an extension, an invitation of his love and fellowship. He desires to be in relationship with us, but he doesn't need us. And that's a huge difference. Another thing we know about the Trinity is that it is perfectly united purest relationships there ever were. They are of the same essence, which means that the same stuff that makes up God the Father makes up God the Son and God the Spirit. Even though they are distinct persons, they share this one essence. They are all fully God. There is unity in their will. There's unity in their work. Even though they're not different in their essence, they do have different roles, for lack of a better word. We can see this all throughout scripture. And I think it helps us to understand how they can be one essence and yet still three distinct persons. So let's start with God the Father. When we're specifically looking at function, God the Father is the source of their work. Secondly, God the Son, Jesus Christ, is considered the accomplisher Oftentimes when reading scripture, you'll see mention that God is working through the Son. And lastly, God the Spirit is called the effector. All right, this might be the most obscure, but what it means is that the Spirit applies the work of God to the human heart and soul. The Spirit is the one who illuminates our understanding. The Spirit is the one who regenerates us in new life and the one who dwells within us. So source, 
accomplisher, effector, all of equal worth and value, all working in perfect unity at all times. These roles do not indicate any division in their nature, but they simply help us to understand how they so beautifully work together. So I'm going to show you two examples, all right? We have two huge acts of God we're going to look at, creation of the world and recreation, the act of salvation for God's children. So for creation, we have to begin in Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So here we have two members of the Trinity mentioned explicitly. And then we got to jump over to John 1, 1 to get the rest of the story. So notice the similarity to the language in Genesis. In the beginning was the word the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then down in verse 14, just to make sure we understand that the Word is Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So you see, they were all there at creation. They've always been there. Additionally, look at these pronouns of Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Nobody else is there yet, remember? And Colossians 1.16 and 17. For by him, meaning Christ, all, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is creation, the triune God at work. So what about recreation, God's great work of redemption? This is one of my favorite gospel passages from Titus 3. Verses 4 through 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Do you see all three persons? 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Last one, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you see this doctrine of the Trinity is all throughout the pages of Scripture. And what a treasure hunt it is to go looking for it. The Trinity is a foundational orthodox pillar of our faith. So let's move into the attributes of God. What's he like? Did some of you participate in the None Like Him study like a year or two ago? A couple? Okay. So some of you might remember this. Um, but when we're talking about God's attributes, we use two categories, communicable and incommunicable. So I'm guessing by this point in the pandemic, you probably know what communicable means. 
We generally use this in terms of disease or virus, but it means that it can be communicated, transmitted to another. You can catch it, all right? Conversely, incommunicable means the opposite. You can't catch it. So back to God. His incommunicable attributes are ones that we cannot possess. They're only true of God, only true of the creator. His communicable attributes are ones that we can possess. They can be transmitted to us. He puts them in us when he creates us. Now, I have a little activity for you. The sealed envelope on your tables that has been bothering you since I laid it down. Okay, inside you'll find um, a bunch of little cards that have God's attributes all over it. I want you to like quick with your group, see if you can separate it into these two categories. Okay, I'm going to give you a few minutes. Go. How did you do? Pretty good? Good. I love hearing you guys talk about the reasons behind it. Which ones did you get hung up on? Holy, good, is that what you said? Yeah. I think we can get kind of turned around about these communicable attributes because we're not really great at them. So we like, we look at the list and we're like, no, only Jesus. But like, we can't do any of them perfectly. (laughs) We're always going to reflect him in part. So seeing God's attributes just arranged like this just highlights this creator-creature distinction, all right? What attributes do we aim for? I'm going to guess at some point you probably have asked the Lord to help you to be more loving or more patient, long-suffering, to be more forgiving. But you probably have not asked God to make you omniscient or omnipotent. If you have, we can talk afterwards, okay? (laughs) But I bet that you have inadvertently reached for those things. And I say that because I have. I do. When we reach for those things, we are striving to live beyond our finite limits. It's a rejection of his lordship, and it's a rejection of his good design. And you know what? It doesn't work When we're functionally trying to live like God, it leads to frustration and pain and exhaustion. It's the very opposite of the flourishing that God has extended to us. The most basic example of this is the smartphone. Think of the incommunicable attributes that Google and Apple and Android are just serving up to you on a silver platter. When you have those search engines at your fingertips, you're virtually omniscient. You can know anything. Think of all the apps that allow us to video chat or to talk to people across the world. We can be in more places than one at a time, virtually. And can anybody control their home thermostat from their phone? Some say that's magic. I say it borders on omnipotence. Across town, you're adjusting your home temperature. (laughs) So this technology is not bad in and of itself. I'm not trying to wrap it. But it's one little example about how all these advances come with trade-offs. 
Did you ever want to just throw your phone in the river? Because you're like, I'm so tired of all these notifications and messages and alerts and I just can't. It's because we're not meant to know all and be all and do all. Just that little device in our hands pushes us right up against and sometimes past these limits. Letting God be God and finding your rightful place as a creature is the first step to flourishing. Finding out what it means to be a human according to God. So now that we've soaked in this doctrine of God, it's finally time to ask, so who are you? we got to go all the way back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, the livestock, the earth, all creeping things. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what does it mean to be an image bearer of God? I asked you to start thinking about this in your homework. It can be one of those concepts that's just out there and we're like, yeah, but don't ask me to explain it can be kind of hard to articulate. I'll give you a hint, though. Those communicable attributes have a lot to do with it, as does our work. But we're going to get into that next week. I'm guessing you've heard the reflection analogy. So, like, I think I've said it multiple times tonight already. So, like, in a mirror or in a body of water or even the way that the moon reflects the sun, the image is not as clear and vivid as the original. But it's still beautiful, and it points back to the source. So as creatures, we reflect the glory of our creator. We can also think of it like this. Suppose all of us are little pennies, and God has imprinted or stamped his image onto us. So sin makes us look like those old coins, dirty and worn and disfigured. The image is still there, but it's very marred. If you were to press it into a clay, you would hardly be able to see any imprint. But the amazing truth of the gospel is that when we are joined to Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit begins scrubbing the tar out of us to restore the beauty of God's image. This is what it means to grow in Christ-likeness because he is the very image of God, remember? We call this process sanctification, going from a dirty, disfigured old coin to one that's fully restored and radiant. It's not just being a better version of you. It's about God's image becoming more clear and visible in you. It's humanity the way it was intended to be. So 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Praise God. I would argue this is where we have to start in answering those foundational questions that every human heart asks. Who am I? Where did I come from? What is the purpose of my life? I'm not going to just answer those questions right now, but I want you to let that simmer as we go through this study. The world will offer you a plethora of answers, but the truth is found in God alone. John Calvin wrote, It is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he have previously contemplated the face of God and to come down after such contemplation 
to look into himself. And then Jen Wilkin just boils down that thought to say there is no true knowledge of self apart from a knowledge of God. This is opposite of what culture is telling you. You need to know yourself. You need to empower yourself. You need to develop yourself in order to figure out what it means to be human. It's time we lift our eyes. The answer is not in us. Thank the Lord. So this coming week, we're actually going to start into the narrative of the Bible with this foundation as our base. And as we move forward, I'm going to keep saying like a broken record, we've got to look for him first. We've got to look for him first. The Bible is a revelation of God. And as we behold him, as we fix our attention on him, we won't be left the same. We'll be transformed more and more into his image. We become what we behold. And I'm confident that you will find answers to these questions in him. Let's pray. Oh God, you are just so far beyond what we can imagine, what we can articulate. Any attempt that we make to describe you just falls short. But that is no reason to give up pursuit. Thank you for extending yourself in relationship to us. Thank you for making yourself knowable, for giving us the opportunity to be joined to you in true life. I pray that these truths about who you are would just take root in our hearts and minds. May they form us as we read the scriptures. May they form us as we go through our day and have to sort through all the other stories that we're being fed. God, you are so glorious and so worthy of our praise, of our devotion, of our honor, of our obedience. We love you and we just pray that you would continue to reveal yourself and that you would be glorified in our time together. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.